Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. I know we both would prefer to have done this in person, but we're still living in an environment of social distancing and face masking and limited travel. So I appreciate that you're able to accommodate the time together today. Oh, thanks so much, David. It's going to be a fun conversation. And just out of respect, I am wearing my mask for you today. <laughs> well, I would, I would love to tell you that I was doing the same, but I, but I can't because it'd be a lie. But I got to tell you, just walking around as retailers and others are opening, my, the, the sympathy I feel for frontline service workers right now mm-hmm. who have to wear those things, you know, for eight, nine, 10 hour shifts, yeah. I I highly doubt anyone's given them a raise, but they deserve it. You know, that's, it's actually, uh, I don't know if you intended to start there for our topic today, but for me, like, <laughs> no, I, take it I, away though. Yeah, no, there's a great segue here. It's, it, it's one of those things that has shocked me as to how much this is changing our nation's psyche, that even how we interact with one another, even ways that we think about benefits design and financial structure payment for folks that are in, on these front lines taking care of us when we're getting our takeout or you know, still there when we need to go buy a new shirt. I mean, there, there is a different way that we should be approaching these issues now. And, and I, I, I think you're right. I mean, perhaps we should pay people hazard pay or pay them more when they have to be on the front lines during a pandemic. That, that's, that's one of the elements that I think people aren't talking enough about is that the, the, the change that this has had on our nation's psyche. Yeah, well, I, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> it was unintentionally the entry point here, and maybe <laughs> maybe it's a good one. I'll, I'll say anecdotally that I was, you know, at the beginning of the, the, the COVID uh, pandemic, when people mm-hmm. were starting to take it very seriously, and, and the state of Illinois was beginning to shut down, I went and saw my primary care physician, mm-hmm. and, you know, in the parking lot, you see workers kind of suited up and masked up, and I went in and saw my doctor, but then I had a young woman uh, do a blood draw and you know, she was masked and it was very professional and, and I asked her how she was doing and holding up, just trying to be a bit, you know, genuinely sympathetic and she said she was doing okay. And, and then I, I asked a question I wouldn't normally ask a person mm-hmm. who's uh, drawing life out of me and said, <laughs> well, what's the plan if you guys, if you were to contract the virus, how, how is And by the way, I won't say who it is, but this is a huge multi-specialty physician group in Illinois that I know is is quite well capitalized. And she said, well, if we, if we contract it, you know, we of course have to take the time off. And I said, great, is it paid time off? And she said, well, yeah, if I draw down from my sick days or vacation time. And I was, I was astonished that not only is this a health institution, she doesn't really have a choice in working in this environment. She's probably not making much more Mm-hmm. Um, money than a you know supervisor at a Best Buy or something, and yet she's literally putting her health, her her safety on the line mm-hmm. um, with no backup from her organization. It's remarkable. Yeah, it it is, and I mean, first of all, I know it, it's almost to the point of absurdity these days of how much we thank our frontline clinicians and workers, but we we should every day. They got into this business because they wanted to help save lives, and many of them are doing that. And you're right, could get paid maybe more, maybe less somewhere else doing something that was much safer. But I, I think that this actually speaks to a much larger issue here in our nation, which is just how this, this virus has really laid bare the failings of 
many aspects of American life, from healthcare to public health, to public policy, to mental health, to benefits design, just as you were talking about. I mean, there's a lot of problems that this has lifted up. And a lot of them, are, I think quite a bit of them are ugly, not things that are easy to talk about, such as, you know, paid sick leave. You should be able to get paid while you are out sick, period. You should not have to draw down on some of these things that might be the difference between you having a little something in the bank for savings versus not. And to me, I just, I just don't, I don't want us to come back out of this, look at each other and say, oh, that was an experience. Let's go back to the way it was. Right. I just don't think that that's healthy. That if we're truly going to be a nation that falls back into our ingenuity and really wants to do the best for everybody, then we will think of ways to make it better. And that right there and that young lady, that person used an example, I think that's a really great place to start with our frontline healthcare workers, thinking a little bit differently around how we can support them. Well, it's exactly right. And it, it doesn't, it shouldn't take as much as it seems to take us sometimes to approach these issues and those kinds of decisions with an uh, empathetic human lens, and yet we're terrible at it. Terrible, terrible. I mean, the economic hardship that's disproportionately impacted America, right now, I mean, if you look at some of the data, 40% of people in households that made under $40,000 have lost their jobs or were furloughed, and that's compared to the 13% of people making above $100,000. I mean, it's just the differences between the haves and the have-nots And there was this wonderful data point from Kaiser Family Foundation that looked at folks that made under $40,000 and the number of those folks that could work from home, like you and I, that could call in to a a Zoom call and still get paid at the end of the day. And it was ridiculously low. It was like 30 something percent. And I just like, I, I have to believe that the folks who are being furloughed or laid off, when they look at the radical disparities, not only in health outcomes as to who's getting COVID and who's dying, but radical disparities in other issues like economic hardship. I mean, this is one of the other reasons that we're out in the streets is not just against racism and police brutality, but I think it's also against some of these fundamental issues of class and, and issues of socioeconomic status and issues of capitalism gone wrong. It's just a lot of those things. I mean, sorry, David, what, what are we talking about today on this podcast? Because I can go on and on about this. Think, this, to I, me, <laughs> this is like, I'm getting fired up here because the economic drivers and so many of these massive problems do lead to you know, more profound issues of mental health. And so I, I know that there's a lot to be said about that, but I also don't want to run your show. This is your show. No, this is great. So the purpose of the episode, of course, is to talk yes. about behavioral health. I thought maybe before we got into the COVID-19 scenario that, that I, I think we both agree will be some kind of inflection point, I might just go back to the pre the, the good old pre-COVID days and have you just talk for a few minutes about the state of this country's behavioral health system. Obviously, some great things, great progress has been made in recent years but there are still huge gaps. And I know this is a subject you write a lot about, you think a lot about, you speak a lot about. So maybe provide a pre-COVID state of the state of behavioral health in America. Go. Okay, go. So by behavioral health, David, I think, you know, for your listeners that aren't familiar with that term, 
it's usually a term that we use that encompasses mental health and, and addiction services. And so behavioral health somewhere, somebody made up that term because they thought it was less stigmatizing, but it's actually a, a word that gets used a lot right now in the field. I, I prefer the mental health and addiction. I feel like it's more consistent with uh, where our communities, the language our communities use. So where were we before COVID? Okay, number one, that the, the fragmented system that is so pervasive that we've been complaining about for decades is still just as fragmented prior to COVID. And that's a really important here because as your listeners know, and some of them have probably experienced, trying to find good quality mental health care is literally as almost like planning on your long-term retirement through playing the lottery. You just don't know what you're gonna get. You're taking a big risk every time you go out there. It's frustrating, it's challenging, it costs you personally. And at the end of the day, you're not quite sure if you're going to get anything from it. That is like the pre-COVID world. And, and it's not really anybody's fault per se. It's really just the way that mental health grew up in a system that didn't really take it for what it was. It marginalized it to the point that it was an extreme service. And so if you look back at some of the first pieces of federal legislation on this topic, and you and I have talked about this, 1963, when John F. Kennedy wanted to really do something substantial based on reports that we had to get people with mental illness out of the hospitals, that they were languishing, they were dying prematurely, they were being put in straitjackets and restrained for no good reason just because we didn't know how to manage their mental health. And we found that you can actually manage and address issues of mental health through medications, through therapy, when you're not in a hospital. That was the entire intent of putting mental health into the communities in 1963. The problem was that that, at the time, we didn't know how to really address mental health in our communities. It wasn't like it was 2020 and you and I were just hanging out talking about reform. This was, the science wasn't there. There was a lot of belief-based policy that went into practically every decision. And a lot of bad decisions were codified because as you know, and many of your listeners probably know too, a couple of years later, we had this thing called Medicare and Medicaid that was created. And so you've got these like ongoing, longstanding, fragmented approaches to mental health that led us to where we were before COVID. And that's kind of, that's the, that's the number one state of affair is that we, we still never figured out a way to integrate it. So that's number one. Number two is that we had a, a very challenging time being able to identify and treat people in a timely manner. And let me give you a couple of examples of this. So there's been a lot of studies that look at wait times. And I'm a big fan of this because I think in, in 2020, if you have to wait for anything, that's a rare occasion. You get your food, you get your clothes within two days. I mean, you order everything, it's there. The difference is healthcare. It's the only example that you really have to wait. So one study that I'm really fond of looking at was a survey that was done. And it found that over 96 million Americans had to wait over a week to get access to mental health services. Now, that's actually really, really good, a week. Because if I had a crisis and I was trying to get into somewhere, a week, maybe I can manage, maybe not. A week is still too long. And if you look at some of the other services, child and adolescent psychiatrist and the like, sometimes people have to wait four to six months. And just tell me what's fair about that, what's right about that, what's just about that, nothing. So the other state of affairs that was prior to COVID was that we had wait times that were ridiculously unrealistic for patients and families that were in crisis. The third, and I'll stop on this one, 
is that we knew that we were losing lives prematurely at the highest rates that we've ever seen prior to COVID than ever before. Now, this is a term that the, the economists have called deaths of despair. But if you look at the literature going back to 1999, you can actually see an upward trend in the number of lives lost to drug, alcohol, and suicide over the last 20 years. And it's, it's actually been terrifying when you look at these data, because if you go back just as an example, one data point, around 1999, we saw roughly 64,000 lives that were lost to drug, alcohol, and suicide to these deaths of despair. If you look at last year's data, 2018, which is the last available data we had, it was over 151,000. The trends here have been exponentially on the rise since we started collecting these data. So you ask me about the state of affairs prior to COVID, and I wish that I was saying the science is great at getting there. Everybody kind of knows that. I wish I could say it was like, we're doing better and things are great. But the truth of it is, despite all the fancy technology, despite all the you know, somewhat just as fancy rhetoric, we as a nation are still in substantial pain and have not figured out a way to address seriously the issues of mental health. I think it's a spot-on analysis. I've started to think of, is, is there a pithy, simple, succinct way to kind of describe the state of, of behavioral health? And, and I, I can think of a two-word description that would be carved out. And for insurance experts and others that are listening to this, they, of course, would recognize a carve-out as a, a financing mechanism that would carve behavioral health payments out from other physical payments like the Medicaid program and the like. But the truth is, back to the Kennedy legislation and even further back into you know, prisons and prison system and criminal justice reforms of the late 19th century, we have treated people in our society that have mental health challenges as separate individuals that, that we don't understand. And I guess this leads to maybe a, a, the question I was gonna ask, which is, is the culture shifting? Are we changing? And, is, and, and what, what does that or what could that bring with it? So have we made your progress and where are we with that now I, and the culture change? I think that the culture has shifted socially. I think that we are now in a much better place to talk about it openly. We can share our own struggles. Some people now are coming out and describing their own experiences. This is due to 2020, where people are not as afraid or ashamed to address issues of mental health or addiction. But we have not done anything structurally. So if we could put it into two camps, and I really do think this is an important a way to really classify change, especially when it comes to issues like mental health, is that socially, yeah, we made progress. You can't help but make progress. I mean, remember, we used to just put people in the back room and pretend they weren't there. There's stories of families that for Thanksgiving dinner, it was always the uncle in the back room that was just a little bit different. And you didn't talk about it, you ignored it. And so we know that that's not a healthy way of approaching you know, addressing these issues. It's not a healthy way for anyone to feel encouraged to want to talk about these issues. But now you can't help but hear people all the time from celebrities on down. People do discuss their own uh, mental health. That's, and that, that's a huge step in the right direction. But again, to my point, the structural elements have not changed. You use the two words, you, it's carved out. Carve out relates to so many different factors with how we approach mental health, but it's carved out in our structure probably most egregiously. 
Well, so let, let's hit on that for a minute. And I want to kind of, this is a stylized off the, cu off the cuff spectrum, but let's say that, you know, cultural change influences or can lead to political change and political change informs or influences policy change and policy change becomes that mechanism when there's a market failure, when the market will not underwrite this kind of resource or structure on its own. And policy change can influence and fund structural change. So, you know, if you kind of believe in, in that type of rubric and, and we say to ourselves, okay, we're, we're at the moment where we're seeing a, a cultural shift or point of inflection, again, in a pre-COVID context, I want to switch to COVID in a minute, where are we seeing the culture influence the politics and then the policy and, and, and then ultimately the structure? Mm -hmm. I think the best example of that is what we're seeing emerge over the last probably decade, decade and a half for, from our primary care providers. Having our frontline primary care clinicians really step up and begin to embrace the, the need, the, almost the, the requisite need to have mental health on site in their practices. And it, and it goes back to the early 90s when there was a report put out by the Institute of Medicine that really declared that mental health and primary care are inseparable and any attempts to separate the two leads to inferior care. And so when you see the physician community, especially the physician community that is non-mental health, begin to ask for change, begin to say, this is a part of my function in the healthcare system, it leads to some of those, those policy changes inevitably. It leads to some of that structural change that's so desired, but it's one element of many elements. And now, even now, today in 2020, I think the last, one of the last papers that I saw on this looked at the percentage of primary care practices that were actively screening for depression. So depression, worldwide leading cause of disability, numbers that you know, far exceed any other mental health diagnosis, really basically something that most of us probably know someone who's experienced depression, but yet less than 5% of primary care practices are screening for it. Despite the policies changing so that CMS, Medicare, will pay for screening now at your annual visit. So it's not just that the policies can then drive the change in the structure. It's also that our communities have got to be demanding something more from their experience within healthcare. And when they do that, that leads to a different type of change, which I think could be codified through policy, but really most importantly, probably just needs to be understood by community that there is a way to deliver mental health better. There is this integrated model that actually could bring substantial benefit to you and your family. So I think David, to, to your point, I, I don't know how much policy we've really seen change that reinforces the structure or even change the culture, but I at least am proud that some people are talking about it much more so than they used to in the primary care space. So, so before the pivot here to the, the COVID dynamic, Ben, would you say that pre-COVID, were you an optimist or, or pessimist? Did you see, did you anticipate or, or see an improving uh, trajectory in getting to better forms of structural change through policy and through markets as the culture was shifting? What was your view of, of the future? Or were you thinking about a career shift? <laughs> <laughs> I do have a, some nice guitars in the other room that I would love to play more <laughs> often, but that, that won't pay the bills. You know, I think that I was, I was encouraged and optimistic when I looked at our states. Our state Medicaid programs were really figuring out new and novel ways to address mental health 
Some were addressing those ugly carve-out issues that you described. Others were really thinking more innovatively about new delivery models and financial structures that could support a more integrated approach to mental health. Now, that, that was pre-COVID. And so, yes, there were some examples of that that I think stood out. Whether it was funded by you know, CMS or CMMI putting state innovation model dollars into states like Colorado, where I, was, where I lived at the time, and, and investing in you know, putting mental health clinicians in over 300 primary care practices and showing an ROI and clinical improvement. Or it was Arizona reconsidering its entire administrative structure on how it manages a mental health benefit. Or California looking at how you can align waivers to create much more of an integrated approach to mental health. I mean, there's examples everywhere. And that was before COVID. And so I know we're going to pivot here and go to COVID, but I have to say, because I think it is really, really, really timely, that as our state budgets are decimated, as Medicaid agencies, which is typically top ticket of any state budget, are being asked to cut, mental health will be at the top of most people's cutting. And that's because of the history of how mental health has been really invested in and prioritized within our states. So I do worry that some of the great progress that we saw pre-COVID might inadvertently get undone because of this economic downturn. Well, let's, let's start to unpack that now and, and let's switch our attention to COVID. And before we get to the, the policy and the economics that, that this is, is likely to influence and shape, Let's talk just a little bit about the, the, the human element of COVID itself, because this was an area I was eager to get into a bit with you. I, I, and I know we've talked a little bit about this, and I think I've shared this on a previous episode, but I kind of suffer from a bit of a, a seasonal depression dynamic. It's, it's not anything I've really seriously treated in my life, but, but I find it gets a little worse every year. I've also found that if this is something a person struggles with, they should not be living in Chicago, um, where it's <laughs> cold and dark and desolate <laughs> right. seven months of, of, of every year. And then that led into COVID. And I, I remember sometime in early March feeling to myself that I spend all this time talking about vulnerable people. And, and that this was a moment in my life where I felt truly as vulnerable as I have ever felt. And, and that feeling of despondence and uncertainty. It, it, was a, it was a very educational just experience for me because mm-hmm. I think it, it, it then and continues to allow me to think about these things in, in an even more empathetic way than perhaps I was before. And, and we just went through a period where 8 billion of us mm-hmm. you know, across the globe all had that shared experience. T- talk a little bit about how you believe thus far COVID has impacted the mental health of our nation mm-hmm. and, and what, are we observing anything in the data? What has this period taught us, told us, and what has been the human experience as we've gone through this and we're now slowly starting to reopen? I'm putting that in huge yeah. quotes, obviously. Yeah, huge quotes. Well, I think that, that what COVID has done is has further highlighted this triple threat against our mental health and well-being. So one is the one that you talked about, which we'll spend some time talking through, which is the social factors. Two is the economic factors, because they, whether or not people want to admit this or not, they have a profound impact on your mental health and well-being. And then three are these, this underlying uncertainty, which I don't know anybody alive that has experienced the level of uncertainty right now that we're all experiencing. And, and certainty can be, you know, to, can be ultimately translated as fear and dread or just, 
not knowing what's to come. And so let, let's unpack these just briefly together. So if you look at some of the data, over half the U.S., I think it was around 56% in, the, in a Kaiser Family Foundation survey, reported that worry or stress related to coronavirus caused them to experience at least one negative effect on their mental health. And these, these are things like these problems with sleeping or eating, increased alcohol use, some reported worsening chronic conditions. And so like it didn't get better that we were all of a sudden being asked to really socially disconnect, physically separate ourselves from other people. And so on the, the social side, we've never experienced anything at this level of magnitude, nothing. Nobody's sheltered in place for as long as we have. We know that there have been populations within the United States that have described themselves as lonely and isolated. And we know from great research that being lonely or isolated can have a profoundly negative effect on your overall health. And one study that's very commonly referenced describes that loneliness and isolation can be just as bad for you as smoking or obesity. So we have these social factors where we're asked to remove ourselves from one another in a time that's most stressful, which is cruelly ironic. When we need one another, here we are being asked to step away from one another. Two is the economic factors. You know, the, the spike in job loss is unlike anything anyone has ever seen. And I don't know any of your listeners that were alive in the Great Depression, probably none of them. But when we saw the number of people who applied for jobless benefits and unemployment, I mean, it was almost one-fifth of the workforce. And we've seen a few of those numbers increase, but for the, for the vast majority of them, those were workers that were furloughed and are now just coming back to their jobs. We're still not in a place that we're creating those new jobs. Economic uncertainty, the loss of job, is a risk factor for mental health, for having poor mental health. It's also a risk factor for increased ED utilization. It's a risk factor for suicide and drug overdose. So when you think about social, economic, and uncertainty, that got myself and a couple of colleagues to think about, well, how will this impact on deaths of despair? These issues that were really bad to begin with, we had not figured out a way to address them. How will COVID really speak to what this nation will do subsequent to COVID-19 and, and deaths of despair. And so we made a, we did what, you know, most nerdy academics like myself like to do. We made a, a prediction. I knew where this was going, by the way. Yeah. yeah did you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We made a prediction and we estimated that based on the, the efficiency at which our economy can recover, how quickly we recover, based on how quickly we can get people back to work, then we could mitigate some of those deaths of despair because of the relationship between unemployment and the, as a risk for, for suicide and drug overdose. And so we said, okay, well, let's just play this out. Over the next 10 years, how many more lives could we lose? And we did a substantial amount of media on this. Your, your listeners can go and look at the report. But our point was not to say it could be a lot or it could be a little. Our point was to say there was an epidemic within the pandemic and we didn't pay any attention to it. We didn't address it. People were still dying prematurely, and we chose to not do anything as a nation about it. Now, I'm afraid we're going to see an increase in that epidemic, the deaths of despair, within this pandemic, but we won't know for two years, David. We won't know because of the lag in data, because of how quickly we're able to report up back to the CDC who did lose their life as to what and to what. So how are we doing? I think that everyone right now in this nation is, frankly, worried and uh, uncertain as to what the future will hold. When we see spikes, 
uh, like we're seeing now when, when part of our communities are reopening, that doesn't make me feel positive and optimistic about going back out to eat. When we see um, an incre increase in testing, but yet we still see an increase in, in cases, it's, it's not as easy as I think most people would like to admit as how quickly our nation's um, psyche, that word that we used earlier, how quickly we will recover as a nation from how this is impacted on our mental health. Yeah. Well, so, so that begs another question for a minute. I, I, I would uh, ask that you contextualize your response in, in the assumption that the economy remains in a steady state. So let's not think about state budgets. Okay. Okay. Let's just think about, because we're going to get there in a minute, but let's just imagine a world where we're just dealing with COVID and, and this mental health phenomenon, this, this 56% of us that have, have felt the, some kind of strain from this period. And in believing your assertion that that strain, mm -hmm. we're far from over and feeling that. Does this, does this moment do anything to the culture we were just talking about? Mm -hmm. Does it yeah. influence political process or policymaking process in a way that yields to greater infrastructure investment? Is this event enough in and of itself, economics notwithstanding, to, to give us another push? Well, if you look at what Congress has done thus far, I think the answer is no. It, it has not given us a lot of incentive to take action, though it should have. And, and so let me speak to this. The only time that we've seen mental health mentioned during the current pandemic was in the CARES Act, which included what I describe as budget dust of $425 million that went to SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which was totally a welcome investment, but it truly pales in comparison to the scope of the stimulus and really, I think, most clearly illustrates this ongoing widespread underinvestment in mental health care. And just for reference, I mean, of that $2 trillion bill, that $425 million was 0.56% of the total amount invested in the airline industry, in the airline industry. And I mean, I, you and I were talking about this the other day. We, we haven't been on planes in a long time, but we've got to keep certain pieces of our community afloat, I guess. But, you know, never the mind that there are folks out there that are having to minimize services, shut services down because they can't afford to keep their lights on. There are clinicians who are barely making ends meet themselves who we're going to need desperately in the middle of this crisis and after this crisis who might not be there because there's not enough money to support them. So sadly, I hate to be such a kind of a gray cloud here over the conversation, but I'm just looking at behavior. I'm looking at what people have decided to do in response to this major pandemic, and mental health has not been at the forefront of anybody's discussions. Now, if you Google this, which anybody can, and you look and see, there's a lot of articles that are being written on people talking about the psychological toll this takes on us, on people describing ways to address issues within our kids, because if you don't think this is going to have an impact on our children, I'm sorry, this is going to have an impact on your children. Yeah. It, it, we have to pay attention to that. We have to address that head on as parents, as experts, because they, they will remember these moments. Yeah. Just like we remember moments of growing up, just like everybody always knows, like in, my, in our parents' generation, it was, they knew where they were when JFK was assassinated. Where you and I remember where we were when 9-11 happened. Our kids will remember where they were when COVID-19 hit, and they will remember the disruption 
of not going to graduation or prom or leaving, in my case, one city and moving to another and not being able to say goodbye to your friends. I mean, these are the things that I worry about. And I feel like if we really as a nation wanted to prioritize this, we would prioritize it, but we haven't yet. You know, it's, it's such a profound point. On Saturday morning at about six o'clock a.m., my, my six-year-old little boy kind of <laughs> does this most mornings. <laughs> he jars me out of bed by tapping on my shoulder. And, and Saturday, he, he did it because it, and, and he, had, he had an iPad out. And he had self-recorded a seven-minute instructional video of how to create a, a Lego pirate ship, which was really cute. And so he woke me up, and I put on my robe. I went downstairs and watched it with him. It was, it was really cute. But, but th- three times in that video, he referenced coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's six. And, mm-hmm. and the, the fact that it is that deep-seated in his psychology, I think, absolutely reinforces the point you just made. So here's the question. Do we see some impact, short, medium, or long-term, on this country's behavioral health prioritization because of this moment? And and if we do, is it a short-term impact because there's some acute pain we're all collectively experiencing Mm -hmm. right now, which prioritizes it? Or does this become a lagging indicator or a lagging social influencer that maybe in a number of years we, we begin to, to reconcile within it in a different way. Does, does the question make sense? It, it does. And, and I, I really, I love the way that you framed it because I, I don't want to take away from this moment where all of us are experiencing a level of distress at a pretty profound level and are having to learn how to cope with that. Because I mean, I think that that's the easiest way. It's almost like the foot in the door for talking about mental health. When we talk about stress, we talk about things to manage our stress because stress can lead to anxiety, can lead to worry, can lead to depression, can lead to other things if we don't manage it properly. So it does open up this wonderful door to say, you know what, our minds, our bodies, they're inseparable. We've got to figure out a way to address our minds just as, as much as like we need to go for a walk. So because we've ate the, you know, the last batch of brownies in the house or whatever it might be, we have to take care of our minds too, which leads me to the big kind of, I don't know if it's the overarching theme here or the point, but that what would happen if we used this moment for all of us to experience what it's like to have this crisis impact on our psyche, on our, our mental health, on our, our psychology? What would happen if we use that moment to reflect on the things that were working and weren't working as a society? What happens if we come up with new ways to be supportive of one another? If we came up with a new narrative for mental health, if we, if we were no longer afraid to have meaningful conversations around mental health and addiction with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, what would happen if that became the culture, David? I believe that it would fundamentally change this nation that we would no longer be living in these shadows of fear because of how someone would judge us for how we felt. We would no longer be hiding and pretending that we were okay when we were anything but. That we would stand up in solidarity and embrace one another and show empathy and love and respect when we weren't doing okay. And that to me is, it could potentially be the thing that comes from this that's more powerful, that's more potent than anything else, is that we were able to be there for one another 
because we, well, sure's, we sure haven't done that in the last few decades. Maybe now's the time that we can do that. So I want to paraphrase. If I'm kind of taking mm-hmm. your points and, and, and making a, a thesis out of it, it would say that over the last few years, we've made great strides in, in tilling the ground and paving the way for the culture to have that level of influence and that, mm-hmm. and that this moment could be catalytic to that, that, that being able to, to, to now seed that grounds that we've cultivated, even if it takes a few more years or a couple of decades, that this moment could have a profound effect because mm-hmm. of that cultural work and getting us over the Rubicon needed to have the bigger systemic changes. That's right. That's exactly right. Well said. And I would support that thesis. I mean, it's a a hundred percent accurate. And then alongside that, as we discussed today, we have to bring those structural reforms. We have to create an actual system that can accommodate this new way of thinking about mental health and not fall back on the archaic inherited ways of always being that we could really bring forward something that was new, exciting, and much more centered around the community. Well, I love that. And I subscribe to it completely. And, and, it, and it gives me reason for optimism that yes, you know, yes, there, yes. there are there's some silver linings, I think, across the board to this moment. We all can maybe point to, despite the incredible amount of hu- human pain and suffering and, and the toll it's taken. Let's, in, in our last few remaining minutes, let's pivot now and, and let's, let's kill our assumption about the economy being normal and, and <laughs> reckon with the fact that it's anything but and and you made a case a few minutes ago that you know historically one of our go-to moves in periods of budget crisis has been to cut things like behavioral health i, I think there's plenty of evidence to, to support that mm-hmm. as, as we move forward not to challenge you in any way but i want to know if your thinking has shifted at all because we we now have you know people like you that go out and do you know surveys and research we can we, we can now start to point to not just the correlation between a person's mental health and well-being mm-hmm. with their physical health and well-being. Right. You know, we can quantify it. We can do it in dollar terms. And if I know anything about budgeting, legislative or otherwise, it's that it all depends on, on the fiscal note, the fiscal score, or anywhere where I can demonstrate savings. Does that become... Uh, an ameliorating force uh, in this moment. Is, is that a place where, are we sophisticated enough at this point to take a study that says, if I cut a dollar here, it's gonna cost me a dollar 20 there, versus if I invest a dollar here, it's going to generate you know a dollar 30 in savings there. Are we capable of doing that? Are we better at doing that? And, and do we think we are smart enough the policy to get that right during this period of economic contraction? Well, if we were to ask our friends in public health that same question, I think that their answer would be no. We're, we're not, they have not seen over the last 20 years a substantial increase in federal funding to support the public health infrastructure of this country. And mental health, public health, primary care are the triplets separated at birth. And we've not invested properly in them, despite there being a profound business case for doing so. Now, herein lies some of the challenges, is that not everything that's best for people is going to save money. That even in the face of budget cuts, it's it's not always going to be the, the popular opinion 
of some folks to add more money into services that don't necessarily save money, but will impact on quality of life and improve health. So I, I do somewhat take an issue with the fact that we should only invest in things that do save money, though I, I get your point, And I think that the literature supports us there. But the problem with mental health, it, it's always been that way, David. It's always been prove to me that you're going to do something for me by me putting money yeah. into you. And, and you know this because you live in this world. And if we had another hour, we could give 20 examples each. There is so much in healthcare that we never ask those questions to ever, ever. Why is that? Because they're usually covering their bottom line or they're revenue generating enough so that we don't have to worry about, is it saving me money? It's what we do, but we ask it all the time from, for basic frontline life-saving critical services like public health, like primary care, like mental health. So if we were on a stage and we were doing a debate, yeah, I can show you the stats that show how when you treat mental health alongside a chronic disease, you save money. But really in 2020, should I have to? It seems yeah, like this is the moment. And, and, I, and I think that's a, it is a fair point. And if there's, uh, any, if there's anything I've, I've come to hate about myself as a professional, it's, <laughs> it's my, it's my de sometimes dour economic view of humanity where we, we only do hard things out of, <laughs> of self-interest. And that's obviously not a ubiquitous statement. And so I completely agree with the point of view. Let me put one, one tiny nuance on the question yeah, and kind of underlie it with, with an assumption. If the assumption is that the native posture of our policymakers, we're not going to shift in a more humanistic, sympathetic direction and that will remain mired or be mired rather in a quantitative case for whether or not behavioral health investment could yield savings in other places that would again be in a policymaker's self-interest. Mm -hmm. Have we gotten better at making that case? Are you seeing it made more actively? And, and do you think this might be an inflection point where, where we could see greater investment and instead of the typical approach of slash and burn mm -hmm. budget line items, Right. Could, could we see a, a more intelligent approach to, to those kinds of investments because of the quantitative evidence they provide a yield? Yeah, I, I love the question because it, it, it provides an opportunity for us to talk about that silver lining. So the short answer is yes, that there are substantial studies. We've gotten good at making the case. We can go to any policymaker and show how an investment here can save a dollar there. But what, what happens in these times where things are drying up it forces us to really begin to think a little bit differently about those line items. And I mean, and this is extremely provocative and probably a highly unpopular opinion in some communities, but what would happen if we didn't have a mental health line item on our budget? What happened if we got so smart at addressing those issues of mental health that it became almost like seamlessly a part of our total budget because we knew we had to have mental health everywhere? You know, calls that we're seeing right now on defunding the police or restructuring and thinking, reimagining the police departments. I mean, that's a good example because a major function of policing oftentimes is mental health and social work. So right there, I mean, it seems like that if we had good leadership and we had that creative mindset 
that allowed us to think more strategically about the dollars, where they went, the investments, and where the potential value add could be. I don't know, David. I mean, this seems like it could be a really good time for mental health, even though the line item itself might be eviscerated. It might go away, and we might need to have a different conversation about where that mental health line item lives because it's no longer its own specialty function within a budget. It becomes ubiquitous. It becomes yeah. seamlessly integrated into everything that we're doing as a community as a whole. Which takes us full circle in the conversation. It's, it's how to stop thinking about behavioral health as a line item or a carve out mm-hmm. and begin thinking about it as, a, as an indispensable function to a person's total health. And then yeah. by extension, that person's capacity to participate in our economy, to train, to work, to raise a family and, and so on. Yeah, well said. Well, I, I love, I always love ending these on an optimistic note and I didn't even have to ask a question to, to get that optimism from you. I know Ben, you and I will at some point between now and the, the fall season, we'll co-host a, a couple of these discussions with, with some colleagues and I'll be eager to get deeper into these structural gaps that you talked mm-hmm. a bit about, but I, I really appreciate you taking some time today to share uh, your perspective and, and, and thought about the subject and, and, you know, again, to share the optimism that, that I have, which is that it's, it's hard to imagine a world where we can get much worse than we were 10 to 20 years ago. And <laughs> that the pain we are all experiencing as individuals, as families, as a society, as, as a species, that, that there could be some good that comes out of this. Yeah. I thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the discussion. And I think, Some of the good that comes out of this just begins in conversations like the one you and I just had, challenging each other, challenging assumptions, but being transparent in the fact that mental health is probably the most pressing issue that we're all facing right now. Well, Ben Miller, thank you. Uh, Appreciate it. Be well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, David.